we are the world's largest supplier of two of the primary treatments for COVID-19 patients. If we're not providing these products, that's directly going to translate to mortality somewhere. Fisher & Paykel Healthcare has become the first New Zealand company to be worth $20 billion on the stock market. Fisher & Paykel Healthcare is enjoying huge global demand for its products that help sick patients breathe, and that's seen it post a very healthy profit, surging by nearly 40% this year. To $287.3 million, suppliers have rushed to hurry up the supply of raw materials so they can manufacture the essential medical devices. With growth expected to increase over the next year, even even if the pandemic peters out. It's done it by saving lives. We feel that as a bit of a social responsibility as much as anything else. The world is depending on Fisher and Paykel and 70% of our output's out of New Zealand. That's Lewis Graydon, head of Fisher and Paykel Healthcare and that's why I'm at the company's sprawling head office in south-east Auckland. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and on the detail... A look inside the factory that so many COVID patients around the world are depending on. Before the tour starts, though, we need to hear what Graydon reveals in his boardroom about how his people on the ground in Wuhan rang alarm bells in January. We initiated our crisis management team on the 28th of January on the basis that this was a pandemic that was going global. Um, That's early. On the one hand, it's early. Um, on the other hand, when we look back, we go, gee, we, we, we feel like we wasted a good two weeks. It took us two weeks to get our head around it, but we initiated our response on the 28th of January. Based yep. on what? I mean, because... I mean, Wuhan, the stories... based on what we're seeing in Wuhan, uh-huh. yeah. And well, we but... could see it, if you like, secondhand, and that our people were in there, and we saw the demand, and we saw what our people are doing. So was, I think everyone was aware of what was happening in Wuhan, but um, for us it was maybe a little more personal because it was our people that were trying to get the equipment in and train hospitals. Oh, um, so it was right? kind of a little bit closer for us. Yep. And then the, the kind of the compelling thing was, um, what makes you think it's going to stay in Wuhan? Mm. Why do you think it's going to stay there, this, at the time, epidemic? Mm. So, yeah. what, so when? Well, as I say, we right pulled then. the trigger on the 28th mm. of January and we said, oh, this is going to be a global pandemic. I think we're probably aware of it maybe two weeks prior to that. And I'd also say, you know, when we were cancelling travel and cancelling, you know, sales conferences and things like that, in early February, it was a bit of a hard sell. People thought, oh, you're overreacting. Yes, a little bit, yeah. And he tells me how there hasn't been a single case of COVID transmission in their Mexico factory, in spite of dozens of workers testing positive. We are the world's largest supplier of two of the primary treatments for COVID-19 patients. The world is depending on Fisher and Paykel. And 70% of our output's out of New Zealand, 30% of our output's out of Mexico. And we feel that if we were in a place where we couldn't provide product, that just directly impacts treatment of patients, and that directly impacts mortality rate. So um, our thinking is that we need to keep our people safe, and if we can keep our people safe, we keep our ability to manufacture those products, and we keep our ability to make those products available. So... We take account of the local requirements, but then almost everywhere in the world where we operate, we go one step further and we say, what do we need to do to keep our people safe so that we can keep supplying these products? And it applies in New Zealand, it applies in Mexico. And um, not forgetting, you know, we've got about 3,500 people in um, New Zealand. We're up to nearly 2,000 in Mexico. We've got 1,000 people in all the other countries of the world as well in distribution and selling. And we apply the same logic everywhere we go. 
you know, what do we need to do to keep our people safe so we can keep providing these products? What would happen if one of your workers here ended up testing positive? We do think about that and we're ready for that. And our goal is that when we have a positive person on our site, we're able to demonstrate that there's a very, very low risk of transmission to anyone else on that site. And that's kind of the backbone of our thinking and you know, everything that we do. So you wouldn't have to shut the whole thing down? Well, that would be our goal, that we don't to, shut the whole yeah, thing down. That's yeah. right. If we have a positive on this site, it'll come from the community, and we want to be really confident that this individual hasn't transmitted it across the rest of our site. Now, we do have an operation in Mexico, and it's a very different situation in Mexico compared to New Zealand, and that COVID is a lot more common in the community. Yeah. And we've seen our systems working in Mexico, and that we do have people that are positive, they've acquired it from the community, and we don't see transmission on our manufacturing site in Mexico. Is that, and that's because everybody is We use the same these. rules in Mexico that we use in New Zealand. And so I, mean, I think it's a good data point. It shows us the system works in Mexico, where so it's common in the community, a lot more in New Zealand. And we do have, um, I think, over 80 positive cases now in Mexico. Uh, we can show no transmission on our site from person to person in Mexico. Well, I'm dying to have a look around the sprawling site on the shores of the Tamaki River. How do you describe this place? Paradise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm masked up and walking around the campus with Graydon. So right now there's a total of 110,000 square metres of buildings on the site. Right. Across four buildings. And employing 3,000 people and growing. It changes every day. Right now on the site there is about 3,500 people total. Um, on this site, since January, we added 700 people. Probably a bit over that now. So we're heading to the factory where they're making these life-saving devices. This is what manufacturing looks like. Hi. Guys. <laughs> it's all right. How many people would be in here right now? Probably towards a 1,000. What are they doing there? They are um, making that humidification chamber that was sitting on top of the humidifier. That's what this exact... That's what this thing here is doing. We're walking through a big glass wall into a factory and there's a lot of people walking around in white coats and white hairnets and white masks and wearing blue gloves and, God, it's incredibly busy. You see a lot of machinery, um, there's a lot of moulding machines, there's a lot of automated assembly. Plastic it's a clean boxes. room, so all the air in there is HEPA filtered and there's 20 air changes per hour. Oh, it's a positive pressure room as well. What does that mean? Uh, so it's at a higher pressure than ambient than here, so that um, no contamination goes into the room. It's, it's whenever you open a door, that's positive pressure, so the air comes out of the room. The only air that goes in the room is through the HEPA, high-efficiency particulate filters. So um, it's not a bad place to be in a pandemic. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> And so what, what happens to these things that they're making in here, these products? Where, where, where do they go after this? Well, this um, once they're made here, we ship them all around the world. Um, we sell in over 120 countries of the world. We have our own people selling in 40 countries of the world. And we have distributors in the other 80. So these are what loaded up onto trucks and taken to the port? To the port or to the airport. They're containerised. There's four of these on this site, two in Mexico. The fourth one is not that full. We're only just building the manufacturing equipment. So this the is moment. the newly built one. That's the one that you've, yeah. you opened in May. That's right. 
So that one's not quite this full. <laughs> that one has just got a whole bunch of um, lines being manufactured, being put together right now. So there's the gowning area where you put the hair nets and beard nets if you have a beard and um, the sterile gowns in. And you can see, and this is all nothing to do with COVID, this is normal practice for us. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see the hand sanitizer, and then that sticky pad cleans your shoes when you go in. Okay. Yeah. There's hundreds of people in this building, but it's eerily quiet. We're masked up, hence my muffled voice, and everywhere you look are COVID signs, two-metre markings, eating areas spread across several rooms and even in the corridor. It's strict, super strict, because if this place has an outbreak, the global supply of this essential equipment is under threat, and that means someone could die. The company makes a number of products, but we're in the laboratory now to take a close look at the two respiratory devices that are behind the spike in profits. So these are intensive care ventilators. They're used in intensive care and they're used with patients that have a tube that goes right down into their lungs, goes right down into the trachea and it seals on the trachea and this machine connects to that tube and it controls the patient's lungs directly. Mm -hmm. right. So that we would call an intensive care ventilator or an invasive ventilator. We don't make those. What we make is this part here. It goes on the ventilator. What do you call that? So this is the humidifier. Okay. And it connects the ventilator to that tube, that ET tube. I see. And what it does is it conditions the gas to body temperature, 37 degrees C, 100% relative humidity. And we do that because the tube's right down into the lungs and gas should be at body temperature saturated by the time it gets there, but because of the tube it's not. So we condition the gas to body temperature saturated. There's some hardware that's mm -hmm. a humidifier mm -hmm. that humidifies the gas. Can we just describe this? I mean, what would you... This is our MR850 humidifier model. Okay, and it's just... I would say this is the hardware, this yeah. is the controller, and it's got this tubes, is the brains, and then it's got all this tubing and chamber here, mm. and this generates the gas at 37 degrees Celsius, 100% relative humidity, mm -hmm. and then this transports it to the patient, because they can be six feet away, but we've got to maintain it at 37 degrees C, 100% relative humidity all the way. And because this is connected straight to a patient's lungs... This is a consumable. We use it once per patient. Wow. We don't swap it from patient to patient. It's consumable for cross-contamination purposes. Mm. Yeah. So this is where Fisher & Paykel Healthcare started um, 50 years ago, was with a humidifier. Our company was built on a vision, an idea that became a prototype. So the idea was originated by a doctor called Matt Spence who was in Auckland Hospital in the Department of Critical Care. Mm -hmm. And before humidifiers, they could only ventilate patients for maybe 24 to 48 hours until and you're using dry gas. And the lungs would effectively dry out and there's a condition called atelectasis. But it meant you could only ventilate for 24 to 48 hours and then um, you couldn't ventilate any longer because you'd mm -hmm. damage the lungs. And Matt Spence had the idea, maybe if we condition the gas to body temperature saturated, maybe we could ventilate for longer. And he went to the DSIR, uh, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, which at the time was New Zealand, the New Zealand government uh, research organisation, mm. with the idea. And a fellow called Alf Malville made a prototype, which we've got in our lobby, 
We've got in our boardroom, we could show you. He made a prototype out of an AG jar to condition gas to body temperature saturated. And of course, they ran the trials, and as they said, it worked fantastically. An innovation emulating a body's natural humidification process. So that's where Fisher and Paykel started. And the DSIR, so the trial was successful. The DSIR approached Fisher and Paykel at the time, which was an appliance manufacturer. We're going back 50, a little bit over 50 years, uh, to see if FMP was interested in commercialising the technology. That one idea has improved the lives of patients, caregivers, and communities around the world. We are almost 4,000 in people, based in 36 countries around the world and selling into 120. Manufacturing in New Zealand and manufacturing in Mexico. So that's invasive ventilation, that's where we started. Yeah. We're probably 70 to 80% of the world's supply of these things. When people are running around buying as many ventilators as they can get, they kind of all need a humidifier. Okay. Yeah. So um, there's that impact of COVID-19. Now also there's adult versions and there's neonatal versions, mm -hmm. by the by. And neonatal versions are smaller and have slightly different technology. How many of those are you making at the moment? We don't, are you allowed we to don't, say? No, we don't disclose any oh, of those okay. kind of numbers. Now there's another therapy called nasal high flow, or our brand name is OptiFlow. Now normally, in a hospital, the lowest form or least intensive form of respiratory support is those nasal cannula. You know, the green little prongs that go in your nose and oh, go yeah. over your ears? Yeah. You can deliver for an adult a maximum of five litres per minute of oxygen. And then we don't tolerate anymore because it's too dry, patients won't tolerate, it's uncomfortable, it's painful. Mm -hmm. If you need to do more than that, you can go to an oxygen mask the green masks with mm -hmm. the holes on the side to see them on TV again. Mm. Um, you can get up to, for an adult, about 10 litres per minute of oxygen through those masks and then we won't tolerate any more. And then if you need to do more than that, you'll move to a therapy called non-invasive ventilation. And this is where we can connect this to a different kind of ventilator and they ventilate through the nose and mouth. Yeah. That's called non-invasive ventilation. Right, so that's, that's kind of a mask, a yep. clear plastic mask. We ventilate mask. through that and the, and the patient's are conscious and that we're helping them breathe. Yeah. Then the next step up is that invasive ventilation. If I need to do even more than this, it's mm. invasive ventilation. Invasive ventilation is the most expensive because it's an intensive care. By definition, that's an intensive care. Now, the difference here is that if you humidify gas to body temperature saturated, we can put up to 70 litres a minute through a nasal cannula and the patient can't really sense it. So instead of being limited to 5 or 10, we can go to 70. You and I standing here right now, we're probably, I'm probably using 10 litres a minute. Uh -huh. So with this high flow, nasal high flow, mm. we can go way above your peak flow. It's known as high-flow nasal therapy, feeding perfectly warmed air to patients, and it's big news overseas. The treatment has been so successful, it's kept 73% of Unity Point COVID patients off ventilators. And that has physiological benefits, mm -hmm. right? And the better outcomes that uh, we're looking for in the clinical data is um, you're less likely to get worse, mm -hmm. or if you start off really bad in intensive care, we're more likely to get you out. So that is a different therapy. It's a nasal high flow, it's 60, 70 litres a minute. That's a change in clinical practice. 
Um, and that's been our growth driver, if you like, over about the last 10 years. What COVID's done is over the evolution of COVID, there's been more and more clinical practice guidelines have changed to saying the best thing you can do for COVID patients is start them on nasal high flow. So what COVID's done is people are buying more and more of these for COVID patients is the first motivation, mm. but, and that's what you're seeing right now. But then the hope is, well, once we've got them in the hospital, they can see the effect with COVID patients that, at the end of the day, it's a respiratory effect, and that's why we're doing this. And then that effect should translate into, well, this should apply to all respiratory patients. Mm -hmm. yeah. So COVID's driving an increase in placement of this hardware. Yeah. And we're getting a lot of usage because of COVID. Then over time, we hope that that demonstrates the, the effectiveness of the therapy yeah. such that they keep using it. So post-COVID, they'll keep buying it, is the hope. That's the hope, mm. and that's what we'll be working on, and we can't say how that's going to work out yet because it hasn't happened yet. Mm. But mm. it makes sense. It's backed up by the clinical data. I guess what I didn't do a good job of describing is this is a gradual process. This has been a growth driver. Let me give you some numbers. We made an estimate that about 50 million patients around the world would benefit from this therapy. Mm -hmm. Last year we said we treated about 4 million of those, so um, we're less than 10% penetrated, and that's after 10 years. So it shows you it's a relatively slow process. So what we're thinking COVID's done is it's accelerated that clinical practice change. Mm. But you won't say by how much? I mean, the way you're what we'll tell you is at the end of the year how many patients we think we treated. Okay. What does that mean? Can I just ask you? What's, what does what mean? Bowel COVID. Okay. He is currently in Business bowel. as usual COVID. Uh -huh. So what we defined, uh, we didn't want to get mixed up with the New Zealand levels, so we defined four operating states for our business with our rules. One is business as usual COVID. Mm -hmm. Then we have a precaution state, which is doing more stuff. And then we have a crisis state, which is doing even more stuff. We predefine them, we know what those states are, and we predefine the rules for why we go up and why we go down. And uh, New Zealand's level is one of our inputs. Because as you can see, we're doing different things. Mm, mm. And this is telling, and we've been messaging that quite strongly, I think. And we, um, on Monday, we went from our precaution state to business as usual COVID I see. state. And there's the requirements. These are all labs that you're walking past, all those big doors are labs. Yeah. Lots and lots of labs. And what goes all... on, I mean, what are they doing in there? Secret stuff. Secret stuff, <laughs> right, that's why I can't film. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you can see it's a big open plan environment, right? Yeah. And Fisher and Paykel's been open plan for, um, oh golly, since the 1990s, we've been open plan. And we're open plan to encourage communication and collaboration. Mm -hmm. That's why we're open plan. Once we're open plan, we do need times where we need to do something uh, noisy, something smelly, something um, that makes fumes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and that's why we have labs. I see. So I just brought you here to give you a sense of scale. So you can see that's building four. That's the one we opened in May. So you were all geared up for, obviously, expansion, um, and then along came COVID. So did you have to rush that, rush this new building? So our business is always growing. Mm. At any point in time, we're either sitting in a half-empty building or we've nearly finished the next <laughs> building. So that's normal for us. 
so um, we didn't have to rush anything in the sense of building. What we rushed was getting into it because we bought on so many people and we wanted to add so many manufacturing lines. Where does all the um, raw material come from? Well, it really is global is the answer to that mm. question. It comes from everywhere, all around. There's something that comes from just about every country you can think is that of. right? Somewhere in that supply chain. The hardware's the most complex. There'd be about 1,500 individual parts in that piece of hardware. Has it been a problem at all getting it here during the pandemic? Absolutely. That was one of the biggest challenges, and it's still ongoing because we're asking our vendors to supply double, triple, quadruple, five times, six times, seven times what they used to. Right. And it's you know, still a challenge. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Lewis Graydon. Kakite anō. Ka